Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. Hi, all you movie fans out there. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You don't have to be a movie addict to visit here, of course. But if you are one, it's definitely the place for you. And we have a great show for you today because filmmaker David Worth, one of our favorite guests, is back this time to talk about his two new books, Milestones in Cinema, 50 Visionary Films and Filmmakers, and Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, A Cautionary Tale. David has worked on over 35 films as a director and or cinematographer, stars like Clint, Clint Eastwood, Bruce Campbell, Shelley Winters, Sandra Locke, David Hopper, and Roy Scheider have appeared in his films, and his extensive filmography includes such diverse movies as House at the End of the Drive, Any Which Way You Can, Time Lapse, Bronco Billy, my favorite, Kickboxer, All Spare in Love and War, Bloodsport, and Man with the Screaming Brain. In addition to his work behind the camera, David has also taught filmmaking at Chapman University, USC, Chapman, Singapore, and UCLA. He's presently a part-time professor at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and what I love to be a student in his courses, his first unique textbook, The Citizen Kane Crash Course in Cinematography was published in 2008, and it's available at Amazon.com, as well as his two new books. David has been waiting patiently, so let's bring him on right now. Welcome back to Movie Addict Headquarters, David. Thank you so much, Betty Jo. It's a pleasure to be here. And after that introduction, I just felt saying, like, okay, check, please. (laughs) I wish I had a check to send you. (laughs) I would, absolutely. But I did order your two and pay for your two new books, and I just have to congratulate you on them and uh, to to thank you. Uh, We're getting a little feedback here. Uh, Is is there something happening on, on your line, David? Can you hear me okay? I can hear you now. Yes, there was just kind of some squeaking, but uh, but it, you sound great now. And I, I wanted to remind our listeners that the last time you were here, you wowed us with your uh, information about working with Clint Eastwood and talking about your uh, creative book about cinematography. And so um, we know that we, we – Nikki wanted me to let you know how much she appreciates you coming back on the show, and she's very sorry that she couldn't be with us, with us today. But let's start right out with uh, asking you the question that Nikki wanted to ask you, and that is, why did you decide to write your two new film books? I'm very glad you did, but what was the motivation there? Well, two separate motivations, Betty Jo. Um, Milestones in Cinema, 50 Visionary Films and Filmmakers, 
it's not a ten best or a, a book or anything like that. It was a book that came out of the fact that these were films and filmmakers that influenced me when I was growing up uh, and studying cinema. Um, I've been a lifelong student of cinema since I was in high school. And these were the, the, the films and directors that I found who were very visionary, who were thinking outside the box and doing things that were far outside the norm for the time that they were working. Uh, and I would mention these films when I started teaching. I would mention these films, many of these films, to my students, and I'd get a blank stare. I'd say, wait a minute, you haven't seen Citizen Kane? You haven't seen 2001? You haven't seen Intolerance? You haven't seen Potemkin? I said, that would be like going into physics and then, and then someone saying, well, do you know who Albert Einstein is, don't you? And you'd say, no, not really. So Milestones in Cinema was an attempt on my part to really pass on to the next generation the 50 visionary films and filmmakers from the last century uh, who um, did extraordinary work under, under really uh, hard circumstances to bring motion pictures into the century where it is now and to contribute to the democratization of it, which has is, which is also happened. So it's my, it's my um, tribute to those filmmakers and my hope that the younger filmmakers will take a look at the book and get interested in renting the films on Netflix and seeking them out and having a look at them. Oh, I think you, you will get that. You will get that that result. And um, I do want to ask you a little bit more about uh, that. But what was the motivation behind Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking? And then we'll go back to uh, the milestones in cinema. Well, Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, a cautionary tale, uh, was a therapeutic work for me because it uh, it forced me to go back and think about all of the lessons I'd learned that had been, quote, zen-slapped, unquote, into my head uh, from my many years in the trenches making uh, independent films and larger films uh, all over the planet. And um, one by one, I was able to recount those productions and what I had been able to glean from them as a filmmaker, uh, starting out, uh, like most of us start out in, in life, being ignorant, and hoping that I, by the, by the end, had attained some sort of Zen enlightenment with, my, with what I had discovered along the road of, uh, of, of my vast and checkered career. And I wanted, to pass <laughs> on to the, I wanted to pass on to the next generation of filmmakers. Also, um, the facts, warts and all, of what it sometimes takes, the kind of persistence, the kind of hard work, the kind of heartache, the kind of joy and ecstasy that it takes uh, treading that, that path and, and putting in your time in the trenches to, to get through 35 films and, 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 have, uh, and have a career in filmmaking. What a great double feature these uh, two books are. I mean, I was so happy to get them together, <laughs> and they do complement each other. And I, uh, in uh, Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, I loved the way you had a little Zen lesson at the end of each chapter. And um, I'm, I'm learning uh, from reading it how I need to be more Zen in my approach to everything. <laughs> I thought yeah. that, that you did such a great job uh, with, with that. And, 
and you'd mentioned uh, earlier uh, Citizen Kane, and I talk, and I love so much as you remember the Citizen Kane crash course in cinematography. And both of the both of your books, you have uh, you have really shown your love of Citizen Kane. And how were you influenced by that movie? Well, uh, I'm in good company. I just saw an interview with William Friedkin, the great director uh, who did French Connection and so many other great films, Um, most recently uh, Killer Joe, and um, uh, he's just an amazing uh, filmmaker. Uh, And he was saying how the film that influenced him to become a filmmaker was Citizen Kane. And that's what happened with me when I was in high school. I was home one afternoon, and just flipping around the TV with nothing to do. And this film came on. And despite watching it on a small screen TV and despite all the commercials, I followed it, I made it through, I understood it, and I got it. And it changed me. It, it expanded my consciousness and it changed me, something inside of me. And I said, that's something that I want to pursue. And it started me on that long, hard, dusty road that became what I laughingly refer to as my career. Well, it's, it has helped a lot of us have an appreciation for movies, that's, that's for sure. And uh, I really uh, felt kind of the same way you did the first time I saw Citizen Kane, and it was on television, too. And uh, I thought, where has this been all my life? And just really those camera angles and which of course I know you you know a lot more about them than I do and so I I can see how somebody who really knows about or loves cinema would be influenced by Citizen Kane and then in your milestones in cinema book you you have 50 of these films that you call visionary and um, yes. the filmmakers visionary and I want to thank you for including some of my favorites there are some that I haven't seen I have to have to admit but here here are the ones that I thought just you were right on you were right on uh, on target here with collateral in the yes. in the company of men Chicago, of course, I'm the world's most avid movie musical fan, so I was glad to see a musical there. And, of course, Potemkin, you already mentioned, and Citizen Kane is one of my favorites. And hooray for you, including uh, King Kong, the Jack Black King Kong, when everybody is arguing arguing with me, oh, no, oh, no, it can't be, you know, the the original. (laughs) And 28 Days Later, so those were... Those were uh, some of the films that you mentioned that I really um, appreciated. Yes. Now, I in Collateral, yeah, in Collateral, there was something about that film. It's not the type of film that I usually enjoy, but it was the look of that film. What what was it about that film? Uh, because you it do know so uh, much about cinematography. Well, it was one of the first uh, major Hollywood films, big director Michael Mann, big stars, uh, um, Tom Cruise, Jada Pickett-Smith, Jamie Foxx, and they they were using high-definition cameras, and they were shooting in the streets at night, Uh, and they were working at very low light levels, one of the first films to do that. When I saw the shot, that happens about three quarters of the way through the film, near the last act of the film. 
after the, the taxi cab has crashed, and Jamie Foxx comes running around the corner and right down the middle of Main Street in downtown Los Angeles in a 180-degree shot in totally practical, available light. At that moment, I said, film is dead. I said, film oh, no. is dead, and, and it's dead because of this reason. That film was shot on high-def with high-def cameras, and I said, how is this film any different, this piece of film any different from a young filmmaker taking their high-def cameras into the streets in Stockholm, Singapore, Shanghai, or Seattle, and shooting available light in the streets at night? And the answer was no different. That means it has become totally democratized, and even filmmakers anywhere on the planet who have access to high-def cinematography, high-def cameras, can make a film that has the same look, the same type of look, basically, as a collateral. And wow. that was thrilling to me. That was thrilling to me to understand that we had come that far. I tell you, that explains a lot to me. It was so real. I mean, there was, you know, there was a grittiness to it, and yet... There's one shot that comes to mind. It was an overhead shot of, of Los Angeles, and it, it just looked like a beeha- beehive sprinkled with thousands of tiny diamonds. And yes. It was, it was just, uh, uh, it just was a, a marvelous uh, film. I mean, and the, and the actors really did sparkle. <laughs> In that it was, yeah, it was phenomenal. Yeah, it was really a phenomenal film. And that scene that takes place in the office, in the high-rise office, near the end of the film, uh, before they go on to the uh, the metro train, uh, is one of the one of the first times I've seen that low a light level used on major actors like Tom Cruise, Jada Pickett Smith, and, and Jamie Foxx, especially on Mr. Cruise, who's a huge star. He was literally silhouetted against the skylights of Los Angeles. The skylight of Los Angeles was providing more light on the actor than was actually used on the actor. Once in a while, they used a very small little bit of light to kind of silhouette him. It was just a real gutsy film and a real breakthrough film for a Hollywood studio, a Hollywood director, and Hollywood stars to make, and I found it totally liberating. Oh, I did too, and uh, I was happy to see that uh, that you had that kind of respect and admiration for that uh, film. And are there any of these others um, out of the 50 that you would like to um, mention in particular? Oh, my. I That's could, hard, uh, isn't it? You know, it's very hard because it starts all the way back from uh, from the great-grandfather of filmmaking, the man who really invented the language of filmmaking, the master shot, the group shot, the close shot, the close-up, the extreme close-up, the insert shots, cross-cutting between actions to have a last-minute rescue. Uh, The father of filmmaking, D.W. Griffith, whose film Intolerance is an astounding feat because it was made in 1916, and it's intercutting four epochs of time the fall of Babylon, the crucifixion of Christ, the slaughtering of the French Protestants by the French Catholics, and a modern story of a man about to be uh, hung for a crime he didn't commit that covers uh, four four different epochs of time, uh, 500 B.C., 32 A.D., the 1600s, and the 1900s. 
and freely intercutting between all of those times at the end of that movie, which was something that wouldn't be even attempted again until the French New Wave uh, director Alan René made Hiroshima Monomore, which was intercutting between two epochs of time. So uh, film after film in those 50 visionary films and filmmakers are, are very worthy of, of looking into uh, and studying and uh, seeing what you've missed over the last century of uh, visionary films and filmmakers who have really contributed to, uh, to where we are today, which is we all carry on our, on our cell phone uh, in our pockets an entire film studio. <laughs> well, you know, um, Intolerance, I hadn't seen, thank heavens for Turner Classic Movies, and I get to see a lot of these by watching Turner Classic yes. Movies, and we did see Intolerance um, on that channel, and it was very, very impressive, so I can certainly understand that film uh, being included in your uh, 50 um, movies that you've spotlighted. You talk about the the holy grail of filmmaking, and um, do you want to explain what you meant by that? Well, for me, you know, films are totally subjective. Uh, everyone brings their life experience to any film. Some people love John Waters. Some people hate John Waters. Uh, <laughs> so it's just that's 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 the nature of the beast. Uh, and films are like a giant Rorschach test, an ink block test, where you squeeze some ink together on a piece of paper and it forms two, two symmetrical sides. And, and one person look at it, looks at it and says, oh, look, it's, it's people having sex. And another person looks at it and says, oh, look, it's angels. So film is very subjective. The, film, the films that impressed me, the films that were consciousness-expanding films for me that in, in my in, in my lifetime of studying cinema, were first D.W. Griffith's film Intolerance, second uh, Orson Welles' film Citizen Kane, and third Stanley Kubrick's film uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Those three, those three films, and all the other films ever made are great films. They're all great movies, but these three films, for me, were the holy grail. For me, were the three films that that were consciousness-expanding films, if you could put yourself into their time and place and not look at them jadedly from our point of view of having, of having now six-second films with vines, but looking at them from the point of view of the early and middle uh, of the last century and appreciating the, the monumental tasks that they were to create. So, uh, th again, that's, that's only my opinion. Those are the films that meant something to me. Another person is going to have entirely, uh, entirely different instincts. But uh, Milestones in Cinema is pretty accurate in tracing the, the directors and cinematographers and filmmakers that were working outside the box and thinking yeah. very visionarily for their, for their particular times. Yes, and I, I really do urge our listeners uh, to, to order uh, cinema, uh, milestones in cinema, uh, if they're really, really interested in uh, movies and what movie addict isn't, uh, because you did such a great job of, of helping us understand uh, some, of, some of these films. I, I forgot what you why you mentioned Chicago as being visionary, and shame on me because uh, 
being a, such a movie musical fan, uh, could you remind me again of what you saw as visionary in Chicago? Well, uh, I think it's the it has the most outstanding uh, visualization of musical numbers that I've ever seen, uh, outside of maybe uh, all that jazz, the Bob Fosse autobiographical Bob Fosse film, and Bob, this is Bob Fosse. This film, of course, uh, Chicago was written and conceived by Bob Fosse, uh, and he tried to get it mounted as a film all of his life and couldn't. And he did all that jazz uh, as um, because he couldn't get Chicago off the ground. He did all that jazz. And what's the first number in Chicago called? All that jazz. All that jazz. <laughs> so, uh, and, and Rob Marshall was a huge fan of, uh, of, of Mr. Fossey. I think he may have even apprenticed with him. And I just thought that the work that he did, especially – in all of the musical numbers, especially for me in the cell block tango number. You know, these are numbers that start out as theatrical presentations in a single shot on a stage, uh-huh. one large presentation on a stage. And a lot of times in musicals, what directors do when it comes to a big number, the story stops and they just let the star sing the song. This is what they used to do in 90% of the musicals. Well, that kind of changed with West Side Story and with Bob Fosse, and I just think it reached its culmination with Rob Marshall and uh, and all and um, Chicago. Uh, yes, I, I agree of, with you. The amount of work that went into that musical number, uh, um, Sublock Tango, that starts the beat of the music starts with the drop of water, and then the foot of a guard and then a drop of water and the foot of the guard and a, and, a, and a lady drumming her fingers on the cell. And all those are repeated until the beat of the music takes over and brings you into this. It's a, and when you think of the work that went into breaking these numbers that are stage presentations down to the beat of the music, hmm. To, to individual shots, individual storyboards, individual lighting changes, individual performances, and, and capturing all of that material, then editing it together back into a coherent cinematic form into a, from a stage presentation into a cinematic presentation, to me it was a whole de- redefinition of the term mise-en-scene, which is a French term uh, re- that uh, applies to directors, which came from the theater, which has to do with what they put into the scene on the stage. Well, mm-hmm. it's been redefined by Rob Marshall in, uh, in Chicago as everything that a director brings to a, to a movie from fade in to fade out. He brought so much to that film. He created so much and had so much to do with every face of it, from the framing and the performances and the lighting changes. He would go in on the weekends and do the lighting changes, and actually wow. worked himself into a, into a state of collapse on that film. But I think it, it paid off, and it was actually an, outs, an outstanding and possibly the, uh, the best. I think that um, David has been cut off, 
but he will call back in. We're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but I'm sure he'll call back in. And um, until he he does, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about uh, the Jack Black King Kong and uh, how happy I was that uh, David included that as one of the 50 milestones in cinema. And I, um, I appreciate him saying in his book about how the uh, technology had advanced so thoroughly that uh, uh, the filmmakers were able to show emotional reactions on the faces of, the, uh, of, of King Kong, which really added to, uh, to this movie considerably. I think he's back here now. All right, David, we lost I'm, you. Thank you for I'm calling sorry. back I'm, in. <laughs> I'm sorry. My, I was my... just talking about King Kong and why, why the Jack Black King Kong was on your list. And I was mentioning about the range of emotion that could be seen in, the, in King yes. Kong's uh, face. Yes, due, due to the performance of Andy Serkis, absolutely. And this is the technology that James Cameron uh, then took to the next step to be able to do Avatar. Right, right. Well, um, we better not uh, tell everything about this book because we want our (laughs) listeners to purchase it and find out what other movies are included in your 50 um, milestones in cinema. So let's move to something that I'm so excited about, and it is your memoir, Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, A Cautionary Tale. I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying it. I haven't finished it yet. I just hate to put it down, though, because you do a wonderful job of just revealing so much about yourself and your problems and your <laughs> tribulations and and uh, your ideas about Zen with the little lessons <laughs> that you have, Zen lessons at the end of uh, every chapter. But let's start by uh, you telling our listeners why you call yourself a cinemaholic. Oh, well, hello, my name is David Worth, and I'm a cinemaholic. Uh, I <laughs> right, and I'm that's a movie would... addict. Yeah, that what I, that's what I would say in the, at the beginning of the meeting if I was going to uh, 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 an a, not an AA, but a, a Cinemaholics Anonymous uh, meeting. Uh, it's the one thing that has been with me all of my life that I, I can't shake and I don't want to shake, but I am I'm totally a Cinemaholic. Uh, for many years, I actually was an alcoholic. I'm 12 years clean and sober. And there, there was never a glass of red wine, a shot of bourbon, a shot of frozen vodka um, uh, that I didn't like. Uh, and uh, I, I never let it interfere with my work or with my family. But there got to, it got to a point where I realized I needed to turn that page, and I turned that page. So I, I do understand addiction. And the one addiction that I, that I simply can't give up is my my addiction to cinema, and I've been a fan of cinema uh, since of watching all of the old uh, Charlie Chaplin and Merle and Hardy and Buster Keaton movies back in, in, in my youth, and then getting turned on to real cinema like Citizen Kane and the French, uh, the French New Wave and the Italian Neorealists and all the major works of Kubrick uh, and Spielberg and, and Coppola and Scorsese, etc., and then down to today, where now um, the internet and people are doing films with GoPro cameras. They're doing films in six seconds. 
and uploading them to the Internet called Vines. I'm a total addict of all of this material. It's all different kinds of cinema, and I think that it's thrilling that, that this media that was only a, a rich man's sport in the last century, and it was owned by studios, it was owned by conglomerates, it still is, but because of technology, because of, of, of cell phones, small high-def cameras, nonlinear editing, everything possible in filmmaking has been totally democratized. And this is how a film like The Square that was done about the uprising in the Ukraine was all shot on cell phones and is on, you can now rent it on Netflix. Uh, it's since the late 1990s, a new paradigm in cinema has happened because of the technology, and that throws me even just as much as all of the, the films uh, from the last century done by the classic directors. So Zen of the Art was, was my uh, – I am a cinemaholic, and I was, trying to, I was trying to therapeutically work my way through all of the, the Zen lessons that had been, uh, that had been hard won hard learned and slapped into my head from my many years in the trenches making over 35 feature films. Well, to show how, how much you uh, love the film and were obsessed with film, uh, you even got expelled, didn't you, from, from a, a school for, for yes. leaving and yes. going and seeing a, a movie instead of being in school? Yeah, back, well, back in the, back in the 1950s, when I graduated yeah. from high school, way back in the deep, dark part of the last century, uh, I went briefly to, uh, because my uh, grandmother had paid for my tuition, I went mainly to make her happy to a school called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, which was uh, not teaching me anything cinematic, but was teaching me all things biblical from their point of view. And I happened to be walking around Chicago uh, and saw the the great film there directed by George Stevens, The Diary of Anne Frank, uh, that wow. Shelley Winters won the Academy Award for. Uh, and I went to see that film, and someone saw me going in and turned me in, and uh, my, my grievous sin was brought up uh, before the, the trustees, and I was asked to leave the school for doing something that was only in the realm of the devil, the cinema. Oh, dear. <laughs> And so, which is which, which? And here's a very funny. Here's a very funny rejoinder to that. When I went to work at the Academy of Art University, the head of the motion picture department there is Diane Baker, who played oh. the uh, sister to Anne Frank in Diary of Anne Frank. And when I realized that, I said, Diane, uh, you realize you've contributed to me to my career, and me walking, coming down this road of ending up doing 35 features and ending up here at the Academy of Art, and I told the story, and she laughed and said, good. And I just thought that was so, so funny that she, that she was in the film that got me, that sent me, that had sent me out of, out of Bible school and, uh, and off uh, to watch, start watching Ingmar Bergman films and uh, Francois Truffaut films and Jean-Luc Gautier films and started me on, on the road to independent cinema. Oh my gosh! Well, was it? Didn't you also have um, work with uh, Shelley Winters later? Yes, yes, I did. I, I photographed Shelley in a feature called Poor Pretty Eddie, um, and uh, that was that was thrilling to work with her uh, after seeing her win the Academy Award in Diary of Anne Frank. She was just an, uh, 
an amazing talent. And uh, I can give you one little insight into, into working with her and a great lesson that I learned in working with her, another Zen lesson that was, that was really forcefully slapped into my head. We were, I had a scene all prepared. The scene was lit. All the actors were ready. Shelley was sitting uh, on her chair in the scene motivating, and I was kind of walking around looking at all the lighting, making sure it was, it was ready. I was the director of photography on the film. Uh, and I happened to walk in, uh, in front of Shelley, looking at the lighting, and glance at my watch, and Shelley suddenly screamed at the top of her voice, Never look at your watch while I'm acting! <laughs> and I realized yes, I, had, I, yet I had made a grievous error. I had gotten in her eyeline. I had gotten in oh. Shelley's eyeline when she was motivating, and so I calmly walked behind Shelley to look at my watch and see that we were on schedule. And I thought, what a wonderful lesson, and what a great way to learn it. Stay out of the actor's eyeline, especially give, a, give, give method actors when they're motivating a very wide berth. I thought it was a beautiful lesson to learn, and uh, I, was, I was thrilled that she drew that to, drew that to my attention. Oh, yes, and uh, that was your Zen, your Zen lesson there. And also, <laughs> also you had, uh, uh, I guess, a, a very... Interesting time in your work, uh, work with uh, Clint Eastwood on Any Which Way You Can and on Bronco Billy. I think Bronco Billy was the first movie that you worked with him on. Um, and which which one of those uh, are, are your favorites, or, or can you choose? Oh, I can choose very easily. My favorite is Bronco Billy. Yay, uh, that's Bron- my favorite. Yeah, no, that's that's probably my my favorite film of, of all of my my work, even though I was the, the director of photography, the cinematographer on it. Clint Eastwood was the director, and it was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life to work with him. And the reason I got to do two Clint Eastwood films instead of one was because I had studied this, the work of Stanley Kubrick, the lighting of Stanley Kubrick, before I had done Bronco Billy, and I was able to bring his technique to play in Bronco Billy, which is to build all of the lighting practically into the sets or locations so that when a director comes in in to shoot, he can shoot in any direction without having me to stop for two hours to change the lighting. The old style of of cinematographer back in the old days would set very hard lights and, and very rigid areas where the actors had to, had to sit or stand or be lit in. And then when they finished shooting that in, that side of the room, if the director said, okay, I want to look the other way, uh, the director of photography would often say, well, give me two hours. Mr. Kubrick put an end to that way of thinking by building the lighting into his sets building his lighting practically into all of his sets. You can see it as far oh. back as the circular table in the war room in Dr. Strangelove, in the, yeah. circular, in the circular centrifuge in the spaceship where the actors appear to be running around on the ceiling, in the, in the candlelit scenes in, um, in Barry Lyndon, and in all of the scenes in A Clockwork Orange where he has built the lighting into all of his sets with practical lights. I had studied that, and I understood it, so I brought that technique to Bronco Billy, and we had an eight-week shooting schedule, which is a normal schedule for a Clint Eastwood film, 
And Clint always comes in a couple of days under schedule because he's one of the most efficient and organized directors ever. Um, but because of my style of lighting and him being able to come into any location or set that we had and shoot in any direction as many times as he wanted to, do masters, do all the coverage, do reverse masters, do all the coverage, and me never having to change a light, he didn't come in a few days under schedule or even a week under schedule or even two weeks under schedule. On my first union film, my first big studio film, Warner Brothers, my first big star film, Clint Eastwood, we came in two and a half weeks under schedule. Oh, my gosh. Which, which probably saved the production over a million dollars. And, and I, I theorize this is why Quinn uh, more or less said to me, why don't you hang around about six weeks? We're going to start up another film called Any Which Way You Can, and you can do two for one. So that's, that's how I got to, uh, to Mr. Kubrick's lighting and my being able to study it and understand it is what led to my being able to do two Clint Eastwood films. Well, thank you, Mr. Kubrick. <laughs> yes, sure. thank you, Mr. Kubrick, for Absolutely. for for, for, for Billy, and and Bronco yeah. Billy was 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 always one of Clint's favorites. Uh, I know it doesn't get mentioned nowadays because uh, he and Sandra Locke had a very messy and public breakup, but at yeah. the time it it ended up being it was one of his favorite films because it was the first film where the critics started to get on his side. And didn't yes. start and didn't refer to him as just the, the the big dirty hairy character who broke criminals' rights and had the big gun, but started to see something more, something more of a Gary Cooper character there and realized that he had much more to offer as a, as a director. And Bronco Billy is the film that started the snowball rolling downhill for him to win the Academy Award uh, ten or eleven years later for uh, The Unforgiven. Yes, and oh, what a great film that uh, that was. That is my favorite Clint Eastwood movie, and I, whenever I get a chance to, I, I watch it whenever it's shown, and I uh, would like to see it again on the big screen, so maybe at some film festival or Turner Classic Movies, maybe maybe uh, when they have their festivals, we'll get we'll get to see that. David, for heaven's sakes, this this interview has gone by so quickly. And I want to make sure that you that you um, let people know where your books can be obtained. Any place other than uh, Amazon.com, and anything else that you'd you'd like to say before we we have to wrap things up. Uh, just make movies, not war. Um, uh, <laughs> Film has totally democratized anyone who has the uh, uh, from any any in any part of the world who has a cell phone or has access to small a small GoPro camera or a small high def camera or even a digital camera and some nonlinear editing can get their friends together and make a movie. In the 1990s, because the technology was there, Kurt Corbain and others had garage bands. Today, we can have garage studios, and I encourage anyone out there who's interested in making movies to get to invest less than $5,000 in everything that it takes, get a, DSL get a DSLR camera, a GoPro, some nonlinear editing, get your friends together, make a movie. You are inspiring a lot of people who are listening. I mean, as, uh, you know that I'm a, a technological uh, uh, well, I'm not technologically adept, but you're even making me interested in going out and, and making a film. And I want to thank you so much for 
being with us today, and I know that uh, Nikki wants me to say to you uh, that she's sending you her her best wishes, and um, we want to have you back again if you'll come. We didn't even get a chance to talk about your latest movie, which um, I think is a horror film. Am I right about that? Um, is uh, uh, that yeah? That movie would take a whole interview in itself because it ended up in uh, in horrendous problems and litigation. It's one of the smallest films I ever worked on, okay. and gave me one of the uh, maybe more grief than all my other films put together. Which is why the last Zen lesson uh, in Zen and the Art of Independent Filmmaking, a cautionary tale, uh, advises everyone before you even. Uh, shake hands in the film business, get a lawyer. Good advice, good advice. Well, thank you again, uh, David. I'm uh, going to have to go into the wrap-up here uh, to uh, give some announcements and uh, tell our listeners what we have in store next week. But this has been wonderful chatting with you again and uh, send you uh, my very best wishes. And we'll uh, we'll be uh, looking forward to talking with you again in the future. Perfect. Bye for now. Bye, Betty Jo. Bye, oh my Nikki. gosh, what a what a what a great what a great guest! Uh, it's always so so much fun to have David on the show. But our time is up, so this is Betty Jo Tucker giving a big shout out to David Wirth for being such a wonderful guest again, and to Nikki Starr for everything she does to make this show happen. Thanks to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support, and to our chatters and other listeners for tuning in. We hope everyone enjoyed the show, but please come back next time for the Movie Attic Headquarters 7th Anniversary Party. Nikki has promised noisemakers, balloons, and streamers, and I'm working on another book giveaway for our fans. There will be clips and quips from some of our favorite stars, plus call-ins from frequent guests and co-hosts. And um, the mad movie man, A.J. Hockery, will co-host. We should have a great time, so don't miss this one, folks. In the meantime, don't forget to check out our film reviews at realtalkreviews.com. That's R-E-E-L, realtalkreviews.com. That's all for now, folks. Let's get in the mood for next week's party. Get ready, everyone. Here's Kenny Loggins with my favorite party song, you guessed it, Footloose. <laughs>